0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's an extraordinary moment quite near the beginning of Steven Spielberg's 1993 film about the Holocaust, Schindler's List. During the course of a late night evacuation of part of the Jewish ghetto in Warsaw, one of the officers coordinating the expulsion of people from their homes comes across a piano. While around him families are being rounded up and sent off to the trains that will eventually take them to the concentration camps and those who have tried in vain to hide from the Nazis are summarily executed where they stand. The officer sits down to play a sonata by Mozart. For a few moments he loses himself in the music, oblivious to the violence that surrounds him. That's only one of many extraordinary images in a remarkable film. It sticks in my mind because of the bizarre marriage of apparent opposites, the beauty of Mozart and the tragedy and violence of the ghetto, the delicacy of the officers playing, and the brutality of the job he has been sent to do. The dislocation between these two states seems to be total, yet here they are side by side. I suppose that image came into my mind because a little over a month ago, one of my great heroes died. We never actually met, yet his writings have influenced me deeply for a very long time. He was born in Paris 90 years ago to a prosperous Viennese Jewish family and was educated in France, the USA, and England. Eventually, he popped up in Cambridge with a special academic professorial chair being created for him. He was a complete polymath, an amazing writer on a bewildering variety of subjects, and I truly believe that he was one of the few people left around today writing in English who was worth the bother. His name was George Steiner. I've been looking through some of his works recently. One of them, an essay on Arnold Schoenberg's incomplete and only opera, Moses und Aaron, is one of the most moving meditations on the Holocaust that I know. And in it he touches on the same thing that Spielberg caught on film. He says this. One of the things I cannot grasp is the time relation. Precisely at the same hour in which the Jews were being done to death, the overwhelming plurality of human beings, two miles away on Polish farms, 5,000 miles away in New York, were sleeping. Or eating, or making love, or worrying about the dentist. This is where my imagination balks. The two orders of simultaneous experience are so different, so irreconcilable to any norm of common human values, their coexistence is so hideous a paradox that I puzzle over time. I puzzle over time as well. So do you, or at least you should. That's one of the reasons why you should be here. Puzzling over time is part and parcel of any kind of Christian worship trying to make sense of that jumble of past history, present experience, and future hope that we call theology. But all too often, we don't do anything of the kind. Rather than puzzling over time, we idealize part of it. We look to an illusory past when all was well, or else we look to a fictional future of wish fulfillment, a false paradise of deadening niceness, or else we look at the present through the spectacles of our choice, rose pink usually, and we fit everything into a nice convenient system of theology or philosophy or ecology or whatever takes our fancy. And all of these are profound delusions. They are lies. They are sweet little lies as the song has it, but lies they remain. They are attempts to cope with the often horrific reality of human existence or rather they are attempts to evade it. In Christianity, The avoidance of puzzling over time leads to cheap, vacuous parodies of the gospel. They are popular. They are very popular at the moment. They are very user friendly. They are very seductive. They are very nice. They are also completely wrong. The readings for this evening's service have given us bad food, serpents, crosses, and the desirability of poverty. Not very promising stuff if you want to be strong, confident, or safe. There's lots of this sort of thing in the Bible. I am amazed at how often Christians pretend otherwise with the honourable exception of composers and artists. Christians go on a lot about suffering, taking up the cross, that sort of thing, but so often in the wrong way we either indulge in our love of a kind of spiritual sadomasochism feeling good by feeling bad all the time, and we speak of suffering in quiet, smooth tones, muttering pious inanities, usually about others' sufferings, or else we just pretend. We pretend it's not there. We construct theologies of suffering as barriers, and we try to fit it all into some kind of plan that makes sense of everything Or else we blame it all on the devil or human sin. Or we see God as the highest point of what is good and true and beautiful. And just leave it at that. Skating over the rest. Letting our concept of God off the hook. And hoping that nobody will notice beneath our eloquence The good news we say we believe in has to come through the sadness and the fragility of human existence. Resurrection comes through the recognition of of tragedy, not its avoidance. The story of God, the story of Christ is not a story about the sidestepping of human existence but the total acceptance of it in all its horror. Jesus, having carried his cross, however momentarily, believes that God has forsaken him and in the acceptance of that emptiness is resurrection. As a friend of mine put it brilliantly once, the story of Easter is not a story of success it is a story of transfigured failure it's that that gives Christianity its distinctive bittersweet character it does not ignore suffering or explain it away it certainly doesn't try to make sense of it all rather it accepts it totally and in so doing transfigures it Last week, I was lucky enough to have a chance to hear one of the giants of 20th century theology, Jürgen Moltmann. Moltmann is 93 years young and is still going strong. His most famous book is probably The Crucified God, published in English in 1974 and for my money, still unsurpassed. In it, he says this. The cross is not and cannot be loved. Yet only the crucified Christ can bring the freedom which changes the world because it is no longer afraid of death. In his time, the crucified Christ was regarded as a scandal and as foolishness. Today, too, it is considered old-fashioned to put him in the centre of Christian faith and of theology. Yet, only when men are reminded of him, however untimely this may be, can they be set free from the power of the facts of the present time and from the laws and compulsions of history and be offered a future which will never grow dark again. Today, the church and theology must turn to the crucified Christ in order to show the world the freedom he offers. This is essential if they wish to become what they assert they are, the Church of Christ and Christian theology. This is not easy news, it is certainly not comfortable news but then nobody said that was part of the deal.